Hi, I'm Chandra Hayslett, the Communications Director at the Center for Constitutional Rights. I'm here with my colleague, Pardis Cabriai, a senior staff attorney who works on challenging U.S. government abuses in the national security context and represents current and former Guantanamo detainees. Pardis visited the National Memorial for Peace and Justice April 26, the opening day, and is here to talk about her experience. But for those who are unfamiliar, the museum, which is in Montgomery, Alabama, is the nation's first memorial dedicated to the legacy of enslaved black people, people terrorized by lynching, African Americans humiliated by racial segregation and Jim Crow, and people of color burdened with contemporary presumptions of guilt and police violence. The museum is a result of years of work by the Equal Justice Initiative, which produced a report in 2015 titled, Lynching in America, Confronting the Legacy of Racial Terror. The report documents thousands of racial terror lynchings in 12 states. The Equal Justice Initiative documented more than 4,400 lynchings of black people in the United States between 1877 and 1950. So Pardis, now that our listeners have some background on the museum, let's dive in. I'm sure you're still processing your feelings and you're highly emotional about your visit to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, but can you walk our listeners and me through your experience of visiting the museum? Sure. Um, so, you know, even just driving into Montgomery, I flew into Atlanta because um, flights into Montgomery had been sold out. So many people were there for this event. Um, but just driving into Montgomery and seeing how many people had gathered and for what reason alone was um, powerful. Just knowing why we were all there and, you know, this occasion of the memorial and also, you know, that it was accompanied by this two-day conference and summit of civil rights leaders and activists um, and that we were all there in Montgomery for that reason and that EJI had all sort of brought us there was emotional itself. Going to the memorial So you sort of, you walk there from the conference site and you sort of, um, it's on a hill. So you approach and you can sort of see it in the distance on this hill. Um, And there was just something, even from the distance, just seeing the markers hanging and this site on a hill. You know, when you you actually get on the memorial site, there are markers there that say, this is sacred ground. And there was definitely that feeling of emotion about the gravity of what you were about to see and that there, this was sort of a sacred place. There are these amazing sculptures outside the memorial as you sort of wind your way up to the very top of the hill where the memorial actually is on the ground. So these beautiful sculptures that were, I understand, made by West African artists of former slaves. So there are just these incredible images that you see um, in sculpture form walking up and plaques that you read that sort of educate you and teach you about what you're going to see that start with the history of slavery and the domestic slave trade and then and then lynchings. But as you walk up to the memorial itself, um, there are just lists of names of people who had been lynched and the counties where this occurred. So the names are sort of listed on the front of the marker and the counties are at the bottom of the list and uh, also at the bottom of the marker. And I started out entering, just kind of taking my time and reading and walking slowly through the markers. And I was able to sort of read and struck by how many names there were, the long history. I mean, that these were lynchings that were documented from the late 1800s uh, to 1950. And on some markers, you had names and dates from the late 1800s until 1950. Um, So I was just struck by the long lists, 
the long history and the very recent nature of some of the dates, dates in, you know, as, as recent as 1949. And again, the, the research went up to 1950. That's not to say physical violent lynching stopped then. It's just that the, the research um, went up to that period. And in fact, when I was uh, done with the memorial and standing outside, I was just talking to someone who had just been through and we were just talking and he mentioned that in Montgomery County there was, I mean, this sort of anecdotally what he was saying, but a, a lynching of a young boy in Montgomery in, as recently as in, you know, 2013, I think. Wow. So this is very recent history that we're talking about. And then as you sort of keep walking, the markers rise slowly to the point where they are at a certain point fully overhead. And so you're just sort of looking up, you know, straight up at these hanging markers. And it's to the point, you know, at that point you can't make out the names anymore and you're just sort of struck by the scale. And, you know, there's just this experience of your horror sort of growing as you or mine, as I was walking through and sort of uh, going from a place of being able to take my time and read the names and, and notice the counties and the states where this was all happening to just seeing the scale of it and just horror at, at what I was seeing growing to the point where it was kind of overwhelming and I kind of didn't couldn't read the names any longer mm-hmm. and um, and the other thing is you know when the markers are directly overhead if your eyes drop down you there are these plaques along the side of the wall that describe very briefly some of the reasons why people were lynched things like um, asking for a drink of water or wanting to vote or um, exercising their rights or acts like that and so you read you read these stories of men women children families having been brutalized this way and so you know as your horror grows and sort of this overwhelming fear feeling grows you get to sort of I think the the sort of bottom of the memorial where the markers are fully overhead and just when you feel or just when I was sort of feeling like I couldn't take it anymore it was just a little bit too overwhelming you get to this beautiful inscription that I actually took a picture of and and wrote that that just kind of it says I'll just read it briefly it says uh, for the hanged and beaten for the shot drowned and burned for the tortured tormented and terrorized for those abandoned by the rule of law we will remember with hope because hopelessness is the enemy of justice with courage because peace requires bravery with persistence because justice is a constant struggle with faith because we shall overcome for me there was just this sort of release of all the emotion I've been feeling the outrage the anger imagining the sheer terror of what people had gone through you get to this spot and there's just this um, you feel like weeping and I was weeping and but there's a release and with that release there's sort of this opening and I think it for me it sort of hardened into sort of resolve and a recommitment to and I think that's what the memorial tries to do is sort of um, take you through this emotional journey of uh, understanding the horror and terror of what happened but then hopefully getting to getting you to a place of thinking about what to do with that feeling yeah. with that emotion Wow thank you for taking us there visually and emotionally it sounds like it's I mean, it was obviously a profound experience for you, and 
I'm sure others walked away feeling the same way. Some commentary has been really positive, and some of the coverage that I read, people have been quoted saying everything from lynching is gone and it won't happen again, so let sleeping dogs lie, to questioning, you know, if there were really 4,400 lynchings between this time period. So can you just talk a little bit about why it's important that this museum exists and why people should visit? Sure. So, I, you know, I went to the memorial, and right after that, I went back to the conference um, that was happening, and I went to a session on criminal justice reform. And it was started, it was opened by a man named Anthony Ray Hinton, who had um, spent 30, nearly 30 years on Alabama's death row for a crime he didn't commit. Mm. And he started out telling his story about how he was wrongfully convicted. He uh, was accused of murder. Um, the only evidence against him were um, bullets that the state said matched bullets from a gun, his mother's gun in their house. Um, there were no eyewitnesses. There was no other testimony um, or evidence but these bullets. Um, he said he was told when he was arrested in, I think, the lawn of his home um, by white officers that there were five reasons why he was going to get convicted. <laughs> they didn't mm -hmm. care if he did it or not. Um, they told him, you're going to be convicted because the victims were white, the prosecutor's white, mm -hmm. the judge is white, and the jury's going to be white. That was said to him upon his, his arrest. His attorney, his court-appointed defense attorney, told him, you know, I didn't go to law school to do pro bono work. And, you know, all of you, this is a quote from him, he said, all of you black people are always doing something and then saying you didn't do it. This was as a defense attorney. Mm -hmm. um, incredible. Uh, incredible. Um, his story is incredible. He's just written a book about it, actually, called The Sun Does Shine, mm. about his time on death row in his case. But he was unsurprisingly convicted. The state judge sentenced him to die. His case, EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative, came into his case on appeal, took it up to the Supreme Court, and ultimately, long, long story short, 30-year story short, the Supreme Court in 2015 uh, ruled that he was entitled to, that he had incompetent defense counsel and he was entitled to a new uh, trial. And his case went back down and the state ultimately dropped his case because the bullets, the only evidence against him, it turns out, didn't match. And mm -hmm. so the state dropped the charges and he was ultimately released in 2015 after 30, nearly 30 years on death row. But that case, I mean, hearing his story, I think, was just representative of you know, the sort of modern-day forms of lynching. Um, so it was powerful to go from, and, you know, he and and those on the panel talked about his um, near execution and his, his decades in prison on death row as a legal lynching. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so it was the, the direct line and connection from the sort of physical violence that happened um, and that was perpetrated against people to the, the more modern-day forms of lynching that occur against black people predominantly in modern times has really brought home um, for me and going from the memorial to that session and hearing his story. That's just one example. What, what goes with the memorial is a museum called um, the Legacy Museum from, uh, from slavery to mass incarceration. And the museum does a really good job of walking you through the history uh, from slavery to lynching to, you know, legal lynching through Jim Crow laws to um, incarceration and ways that the system has just evolved mm -hmm. to, for the same purpose that underlied, you know, lynching in terms of subjugating people, depriving people of 
political power, economic power, prosperity, land, all based on this invented theory of racial inferiority and white supremacy, that that purpose and that justification continued. It just, you know, it manifested Mm -hmm. differently um, as, as time went on. I really hope that people who have doubts visit because, you know, they'll obviously learn something. I think people who are, you know, work in criminal justice and people who are just genuinely interested in it will go because they're curious and they're passionate about it. But I haven't visited, but it, I'm definitely going to. But my my hope is that people who are doubtful, people who, you know, were quoted questioning the number or saying, you know, this isn't happening again. It's still happening. It's mm-hmm. just taken on a new face. Mm-hmm. I really hope that they visit. And I should say, I mean, the museum is powerful because it's narrative, but it's data. I mean, there are statistics right. and data and physical evidence or pictures, photographs mm-hmm. of, I mean, if you doubt the lynchings, photographs that were turned into postcards of, of people having been lynched. And then stats today throughout history that, that back up the connection. So, you know, it's made clear in the museum that in the 1920s, when the, when lynchings began to decline, the rate of execution rose, mm-hmm. that death sentences were highest in states of the old confederacy. So there's data that sort of supports the connection. And, you know, when you look at our prison population today, there's a lot of information in the museum. I mean, we have a prison population of 2.3 million people, and two-thirds of everyone in prison today is is black or brown, yeah. people of color. You look at the criminal justice system, I thought one stat that was powerful was of 2,400 elected prosecutors, 95% are white, mm-hmm. 79% are men. One percent of women are color of color. I mean, that is the system. Those are the people who hold life and death decisions in their hands. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't understand that without understanding, you know, again, the, the right. history. Right. So it's powerful, the museum, I think, in in backing up the conclusions and the connections with data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, I don't I don't know if interesting is the right word because it's probably not interesting that the stats that you just shared majority-wide are the same stats that were those five facts that were shared with the gentleman who you who you referenced. White prosecutor, exactly. white judge, yeah. white it's, victims. It's still the same. Jury. Yeah, still the same. Yeah. So let's just connect this to um, the work at the Center for Constitutional Rights. You know, the purpose of this museum is for America to come face-to-face with its brutal past and continuing injustices against blacks. Can you relate this to the work that's going on at Center for Constitutional Rights? Sure. I mean, I can speak about it from the perspective of the work I do, which okay. is, or what I was thinking about going through the museum, it's I work um, in challenging, you know, policies in the national security realm. And I started out at CCR representing detainees at Guantanamo, Muslim men at Guantanamo. And I think the more I've done that work, I've been struck more and more by, I think, how, you know, the way that we've talked about torture and prolonged detention and punishment and targeting and singling out of Muslim men and creating this sort of second-class system of justice for them in Guantanamo has been, in a way, divorced from the broader landscape of the way that black people um, have been targeted and persecuted and violated and tortured, you know, Mm in the you know the founding of this country so i think you know that context that broader broader context is something that i think we are trying to be more aware of in our messaging and in our you know the way that we talk about abuses at guantanamo and sort of recognizing that as horrific as 
those abuses are, they're not ex necessarily exceptional. I mean, the circumstances around Guantanamo and torture, things sort of came, to gain, well, came together in a particular way post 9-11 to create, you know, systems like the CIA detention program and, and Guantanamo, but they're not necessarily, the roots aren't new, the roots, I think, existed. So I think just walking through, I was struck, it sort of underscored for me the importance of being aware, even if we're not always talking about it or referencing it in our statements and the, you know, the way that we talk about Guantanamo, just being aware of the broader context and, and the history in, you know, of, of torture and punishment and violence mm -hmm. um, you know, in the United States. I was just thinking a lot about that. I mean, there were some striking parallels just, you know, in some of the language that's used in the memorial and talking about, you know, a second-class system of justice in the courts um, and how the ordinary criminal courts were deemed to be too good for black people, and that was sort of mm -hmm. a reason why, you know, mob violence um, and lynchings occurred is because they were, you know, black people were deemed not worthy of the same rights as you know, white people in court. Mm -hmm. um, some of the same things are said about, you know, justifying why we need places like Guantanamo and military commissions because the federal court system is too good, you know, that people accused of um, terrorism aren't worthy of, of the same basic rights to due process. You know, in terms of mob mentalities and white mob <laughs> mentalities, I was thinking about our current president. For example, the campaign when he was on stage, I mean, I sort of can't get out of my head the moment when uh, Trump was talking about waterboarding, bringing back waterboarding and wars, yeah. and people were cheering on national television to that. Right. You know, was, you sort of thinking about that and looking at these photographs of mobs standing around posing for pictures mm -hmm. as a body was hanging. You know, I mean, these things that we're seeing today are, not, again, not not necessarily new or exceptional. They've just changed shape and form. Yeah. The recycled similarities are both sad and disgusting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Goodness. I hope our conversation um, spurs others to have conversations. So I want to thank you for sharing this really personal experience with our listeners. And folks, if you're on the fence about whether you were going to visit or not, I hope Pardis has convinced you that you definitely need to go and see and feel for yourself. Um, this mission is very critical. Um, so for more information about the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Equal Justice Initiative, please visit ehi.org. Thank you. Thank you.